We're going to be in John chapter 20. If you want to turn to John chapter 20. And we are, as you can see, heading towards uh, the Lord's table uh, this morning. <clears throat> so uh, we'll study the word with that in mind. Last week, there was a lot done. And by the way, is the giraffe getting in your way over there? You want me to move it back a little bit? They're my favorite animal, so I'm... They're staring right at you. Great. Uh, last week we talked about the difference between uh, not being able to see the Lord with our eyes, but being able to hear, especially through the Word, hear Him call us. And we talked about the importance of this time, like your life being, uh, the phrase was in the age of the ear, right? We were called to respond to God's word and call to us, and one day we'll see him clearly. So that was last week. This week, it's interesting how, uh, where the story is going to bring us, we're in John 20, which is the resurrection, the empty tomb, but there's going to be all of this language about seeing. They see this, and they saw that, and they see this, and they saw that, and there's going to be at one point, Mary Magdalene is going to see Jesus and think he's a gardener. There's this notion of, uh, well, seeing, but not really perceiving. You know, there's these two just different ways to see things. So I'll start with a real simple one. This, these books came out a long time ago. Do you remember these? The Magic Eye? They were all the, all the rave in, in like 2000. And then there's, and I'm not going to, don't squint. I'm not going to keep it open long enough for you to figure out what's here, but there are these fairly random pictures, these abstract uh, images, but if you stare at them really closely, you see something. You know what I'm talking about? Like it's kind of like 3D, it sort of lifts off the page. And when I was a kid, you know, someone would open this up and you'd gather around and there'd be someone saying, do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see it? And I, I don't see it. I don't see it. And then, and then you'd go, now I see it. But the truth is, I saw the page the whole time. I saw it, but I didn't see it. You see the difference? I saw it, but I didn't see it. There's a couple of other ones. Just to imprint uh, the idea in us. Let me show you this picture. Do you see the baby? You see like the feet by the tree? So you don't see it. And some of you still don't see it. We're about to change the slide and you're going to drive home and be like, that jerk. <laughs> but there's a baby there. So some of you see it. Some of you, oh, now I see it. Okay, here's another one. You got, everybody likes these. Right? And many of you have seen this. Right? Which line is longer? The answer is they're all the same. There's, there's sometimes you're looking at something and you see it, but do you really get it? She's going to stare right at him and think he's the gardener. Here's another one. You see the black dots? Look at the yellow dots. Do you see the black dots? Yeah, that means you have an ocular disease and you should dial 911. <laughs> Nobody else sees that but you. 
I'm diagnosing your uh, whatever, something with a degeneration at the end of it. Uh, I think those are all of them. Is that right, Jimmy? Yeah, you can turn that off. Um, so we're going to see lots of things today in Scripture. And you're going to hear apostles seeing things and Mary Magdalene seeing things. And you will, at the end of this message, have heard accurately the account of the risen Lord. The question is, do you see it? I don't, I don't, I'm not really that interested to know, like, do you know it? I want to know, do you know it? Because you could stare at the thing your whole life. And if you miss it, Man, what a tragedy. What a tragedy. All right, so let's, uh, let's start to look in John 20. Let me, a little uh, roundup here. We, this, whole several month, this whole month, we've been looking at the various days of Vacation Bible School. So today is Thursday of Vacation Bible School. So three weeks ago, we started Monday, which was Jesus is a boy in the temple. Two weeks ago, we did Jesus at uh, as he's entering ministry at his baptism. Last week we did Jesus at the height of his ministry. And today we're doing, looking at Christ at the end of his ministry. Um, his resurrection. So, John 20, and I want to just start with the first two verses. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Okay, I want to stop here because I want to point at something early that John is doing. John, who's writing this gospel who, by the way, we also think is the person behind the phrase, the one whom Jesus loved, or the other disciples you read here, okay? John, it seems to me, has made a choice in recording his witness of the resurrection of the Lord. And that is, he's going to tell this story through the experience of Mary Magdalene. Okay, so from John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18... That's the account of the resurrection of Christ or, or the empty tomb. Uh, even the apostles, Peter and John, they're going to enter into the scene and they're going to leave the scene. Okay, they're not the main point. Very often, we sort of approach these resurrection uh, passages with sort of an analytical mindset or what proof text mindset or what is this saying about if we correlate this with the account in Mark and if, you know, if we, we, we... I'm going to ask you not to do that today and just to appreciate that John is reflecting on the empty tomb through the life of Mary Magdalene. And we already have a tip-off, not the least of the fact that it starts with her. But if you read the other Gospels, you know that she wasn't alone at the tomb. So if you read Matthew, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. If you read Luke the, uh, or Mark, Mark adds uh, a woman named Salome to the picture. And when you get to Luke, you realize another lady named Joanna also went. So there's, there are several women who have gone to the tomb early in the morning before, just, just at first light, to honor the deceased man, Jesus. Uh, and yet, here in John, Mary Magdalene. 
But at the same time, even here in John, it's not as though he's trying to mistell the story. There's, the notion that the other women are present is actually here in the second verse. Notice when Mary Magdalene speaks in the second verse, I'm reading the end of the verse when she says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, notice this, and we do not know where they've laid him. Do you see the we? She's speaking as though she's in a group. But John's really just interested in her right now. Okay, so I want to invite you this morning to receive the story of the resurrected Christ through the experience of Mary Magdalene, which is, uh, I think, gonna, is really special. So to do that, let me just spend a little time on saying who is Mary Magdalene. Magdalene is not a last name. It's, uh, it's a town. Magdala is a town on the southwest side of the Sea of Galilee. I've, I've been there before. It's, it's you can locate it to this day. Uh, in fact, they're excavating uh, a, um, a synagogue there that dates back to the very time of Christ. So it's quite likely you can look at a synagogue in which Jesus himself taught in Magdala. So just like Jesus was the Nazarene, Mary is the Magdalene. Okay? And one of the reasons they differentiate Mary the, of Mary Magdalene is because there were so many Marys. Mary is possibly the most common name in, uh, for women in Jewish sort of early New Testament culture. So Mary is lots of Marys all over the place in the New Testament. We've got Marys coming out of our ears. And sometimes we have this desire to merge these Marys because we like right, our I don't know, it seems to be our way. We just want to have one simple Mary who did it all. Uh, but uh, I do just think there's a lot of Marys walking around. Um, this is what we do know about Mary. This is Luke 8. I want to read, I just want to read three verses out of Luke 8. That's, trust me, I'll read it. Good luck with that. You probably have your ocular disease and you can't read that. This is what it says. Soon afterward, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. This is speaking of Jesus. Here's verse 2. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. And Joanna the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's what we know about Mary Magdalene. We know that at some point in her life, the Lord approached her and cast out seven demons from her, which sounds like a lot to me. Uh, you can imagine, even from the other accounts of a demonic possession in the New Testament, that uh, it, it wasn't all that uncommon, but typically when you see this in the scriptures, the person who's possessed is an outcast, is placed outside the town or the village, uh, is kind of a pariah or is shunned, so they're not part of the daily life of the village. You can imagine, you can just take those things and sort of overlay them on what you might have expected Mary Magdalene's life was before the Lord found her. We might say this. We don't know much else about Mary Magdalene except that probably we could say that she views herself as having been salvaged out of the wreckage by the Lord. And so she's following the Lord. 
She's gone from being Mary of Magdalene to sort of Mary of, of Jesus. She, wherever he goes, she goes. And you see there's this, this group, apparently, of women who are enabling the ministry of Christ and the disciples by either their wealth or their service. And she's one of those. This is one more general thought before we leave uh, sort of Mary in, in her particular. It's obvious, this is an obvious thought, but it's probably important worth saying, Mary was a woman. And I, um, I say this because at this time of this age, uh, the woman was not esteemed as equal in society. Uh, certainly not the way that we view women in, in our place and time. And it, I find it so striking we should find it striking where the apostolic writers, with John in particular, by the way, John seems to just find great joy in telling you stories of godly women around the Lord. And this is, this is an, odd, there's an odd thing we should appreciate, which is uh, if you take Mary and her station as a woman and then Mary as her station of having been demonically possessed, you know, we have someone who by the world standard would be the last person to ever really share in the kingdom of God and she's the first one who will ever see the resurrected Lord. And I think John likes that. I think John sees that and he, he sees it. He doesn't just see it, he sees it. He says people should know who the Lord first met. So this is the story of Mary Magdalene. Let me read, uh, pick up again in uh, verse 3, and I want to read to 10. <clears throat> it says, So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Just to pick up where we left off, right? Mary Magdalene kind of comes back and says, Someone's taken the body of Jesus. So Peter and this other disciple, this is, would be John, they go out. Verse, verse 4, I'll pick up. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as, they did not for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So we have this, this moment where the disciples enter into the story. They're going to come into the story, and they're going to leave the story. But when they come into the story, there's this race to the tomb, they peer into the tomb, and then there's this a lot of detail about linen cloths. Did you hear that? Like, man. Um, I will say, John is the only gospel writer who is an eyewitness to the empty tomb. Matthew didn't go. Mark was not an eyewitness to the empty tomb. Luke wasn't. So at one level, some of these granular details just sound as though it's somebody who's recollecting. And there's this, there's this view in at what seems to be, uh, well, I mean, let me say this. There are various interpretations of how we're supposed to understand these linens, but we, 
no matter what the interpretation, the conclusion is the same, which is it is clear that Jesus' body was not snatched. You have the linens there, and then the linens that would have been around his head are, are sitting over in a different place, apparently folded up. If you were going to steal a body from a tomb, A, just I'm asking you, would you take the time to unwrap it? Or would you keep it wrapped? His body's been there for, this is the third day now. You going to unwrap it? Also, if you did for some reason want to unwrap it, would you have taken the time in your thievery to fold stuff up? And so I think that's why John's giving this to us. I think it's because John sees it, and it says, it says, and when the other disciple, this would be John, saw it, he saw it and believed. For as yet, they hadn't put two and two together. That's the nature of the text there, right? That's eight and nine. So I have a sense that John, it's, it's seeing the linens, and in his mind saying, it does not seem like someone took the body, and yet the body is not here. And then him sort of sitting in that little mystery. No one took the body, but the body is not here. I think it's in that that John begins to see. Ah. Because up to this point, no one had made sense about it. So they head off, but Mary, you'll find out, Mary actually stays behind, apparently alone. Let me read 11 through 15. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I want to stop there. You should be sad for Mary, I think. And she sees so much. So let me say this. At one hand, she seems to see and not see. On another hand, the more I sit in this text, I realize she knows Jesus better than anybody. Just about anybody. She knows Jesus so well. But there's this sense of... She's seen angels, she's seen Jesus, she saw the empty tomb, she saw it there with the disciples. There's people who were coming and seeing and putting things together. And, but but she's, she's just there grieving. I want you to imagine what her grief says about her and her relationship with the Lord. Let me ask you a couple of questions about this, just for you to think about. <clears throat> if, if Mary Magdalene was following Jesus to show that she could get into heaven, do you think you'd see her weeping at the tomb like this? 
You know, that if some evangelist had come by and said, I'll tell you what, you confess Jesus with your mouth and you believe in your heart, God raised from the dead and you'll be saved and then you'll go to heaven. And if her heart responded, not necessarily to the deep affections of a loving God, but to the transactional notion of if I believe this thing, I'm going to go to heaven. Do you think she'd be there? You think she'd be weeping like that? I have to imagine, I have to imagine, cognitively, Mary is a mess about Jesus and everything that was... What, what do you think the people thought about Jesus knowing that his body's dead? Luke 24 is going to give this account of, I think, two other disciples. They're on, this, they're on a walk. This, they're walking to this town called Emmaus. And the resurrected Lord comes up alongside of them. They, they don't recognize him for who he is either. So there's something strange about that. But they're walking and Jesus comes alongside of them and says, what's up? What's going on, fellas? And it says they looked sad. And they begin to talk about Jesus. They say there was this man, he did many miracles and wonders, and we, we had thought he was the Messiah. That's what they say. We had thought he was the Messiah. They had thought, but they had given up that thought. Why? Because he's dead. So there's this sense, if you imagine Mary weeping at the tomb, if her interest in the Lord had simply been around the things that she's going to get if she believes, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. I think in her mind, if you were to ask her, well, what does this mean about the person of Jesus? Her mind would have been somewhere somewhere between the town of confusion and like failure. It would have been like, I don't know what this means. I, the disciples are in hiding. It has the entire movement failed. We had thought he was the Messiah. All of these things. Right? There's in, the land, in the theological world of who Jesus was, right now, the disciples and everybody thinks failure. And yet she is mourning and weeping at the tomb. I think this is actually what I have just fallen in love with about this story is it, it just shows me. It shows me Mary has fallen in love with the Jesus that met her. And that's, what she's, that's what she's grieving. She's grieving the loss of the man who redeemed her out of the pit. Who, though she was a pariah placed on the outside of the community, saw her and called her in. And I think that, the Jesus that she knew is what she's missing. Not all, not, not the, she's not, I don't think Mary in one level is worrying about justification or substitutionary atonement or propitiation or new covenant tribal belonging to the, I don't, all of that stuff. All, and it, in its own place, it's important. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm saying we should note that's not what Mary is grieving. We might even say this way. In one level, Mary's mind is critically mistaken. She thinks God is dead. She thinks Christ is dead. 
and he's alive. So at one level, Mary is critically mistaken, but she has the right heart about it. She has just the right heart about Jesus, which I think at the end of the day is way better than being correct about Jesus and having the wrong heart about him. And this is where I just want to tell you, I know you, many of you see it, but do you see it? Like to have the right heart about Jesus, I think is why Mary Magdalene's the story. I'll say it this way. I think the love of God is at the root of saving faith. The love of God is at the root of saving faith. Having, and I don't mean this like, I don't think saving faith is simply found in waiting for salvation. I think it's found in experiencing redemption in this life. Experiencing redemption. Mary doesn't love Jesus because Jesus is going to help her go to heaven. She loves Jesus because she has experienced his love. And out of that comes this this overabundance, outpouring of faith. For you, I mean, imagine I'm saying this carefully. I would say a cognitive agreement with the technical positions of the Christian faith is inconclusive as to whether or not you're saved. It's not, it's about your heart. Does your faith spawn from a love of God? I think you have to experience his love. And I think in doing that, you, those people who experience the love of the Lord typically find it because they, have, they identify a need that they have that only God can meet. I'll give you, offer you some examples to help you think about this. When you read the stories of Christ in the Gospels, do you ever find yourself being like, I'm that guy, or I'm that person? You, you know what I mean? You, the thief on the cross, you, oh. I feel like the thief on the cross or, or uh, the rich young ruler or the tax collector or the woman at the well or you name the characters, right? I mean, they're all there. The, the outcast, the self-righteous Nicodemus who comes in the middle of the night and yet God gives him so much time. You ever find yourself there? You read the denial of Peter? You ever find yourself there? You read the prodigal son, you find yourself there. You read the parable of the sower, and you wonder what kind of plant you are. Am I going to survive the withering sun and the challenges of life? Am I being torn down my desire for more? That you read these parables and you call your question. I feel that if, if you are not finding yourself in the shoes of the redeemed, well, how are you connecting to the redeeming God? Are you just waiting for the future fortune to show up? Is that the notion? Or is he presently precious? Is God presently meaningful right now? Mary is wrong about the God of the future. The God of the future in her mind is a dead body that has been lifted by someone else. She's entirely wrong about what the future holds for the kingdom of God. I mean, She probably can't even make sense of that, but her present understanding of who Jesus is is spot on, and she loves him. 
That, that is the basis of faith that just gives fruitful life. Is that you? A long time ago, for me, a long time ago, many years ago in my world, I, had a, I, I found myself asking a question about the Lord. Uh, I can't recall how I came to this question, so I, I can't even to this day remember the context. But this was the question that I came to just between myself and God. I, I remember asking the question that if, if the Lord tells me that I am not going to go to heaven, will I still follow and worship him? I don't know how I, that question, why that question mattered to me, but it mattered to me. If God came to me and said, I am not going to let you in, will I still worship? And I remember my answer. My answer was I would. Now, it was an untested answer of my youth, so I'm not saying this to magnify myself, but I, I am pointing to this, as I think back in my life and look back, I can look to moments like that to say, that's evidence that the present love of God was growing in significance in my life. That, the, that I had come to know enough about God and his redemptive nature and his way for me in this life now that that by itself was meaningful. That all by itself is meaningful. That, again, in an untested, I'm sure it was a juvenile sort of way, I, it was a sign of life. If you want him to save you for heaven, don't you want him now? Are there things now that your life needs to be redeemed from? I mean, even when Grace read Psalm 26 this morning, who can ascend the hill? Like, I thought to myself, I can't do that. I can't ascend that hill. God should be presently precious to you. And then he'll meet you. This is what he says. I want to read this. It's so good. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, it's funny, just like last week, right? They couldn't, see, they couldn't make Jesus out, but they could recognize his sound. Same thing happens here. By the way, it takes place at the fourth watch. A lot of similarities between that story and this story, the break of dawn. But Jesus says, Mary. She says, Rabbi. Jesus said in verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, there's such a confusing moment in this reading, I have to deal with this, but I really don't think it's the heart of the text, which is this, don't cling to me, I haven't yet ascended. It's kind of a mysterious, what's going on there? And I don't think it's as mysterious as... It's, some may wonder, I don't think it's like, you can't touch my body, it hasn't been, it hasn't met the Lord, and 
gotten the divine spray or whatever. You know, whatever it is, you sort of think. I don't think it's that. In fact, the very next story in John is, is Jesus meeting in the upper room with Thomas. And he's going to grab Thomas's hand and push it into his side. And then the very next story in John essentially is Jesus eating fish on the shore with the disciples. So I don't think there's some sort of overly mysterious, like wizardly spell thing going on here. But I don't know what's going on here. I mean, I can't proclaim to you like, oh, this is easy. It does feel like one of those questions one of us is going to ask when we see the Lord one day. What exactly did you mean by that? I think, so my thoughts are on the way to saying something like this. What I think is happening is that our Lord is, I can imagine Mary clinging to the Lord like, I thought you were gone, but you're here. And the Lord saying, actually, I'm going to be gone. Like, Right, he's about to ascend and be gone for the rest of her life. That clinging to the physical body of the Lord is not what needs to matter to Mary. Clinging to the truth of his resurrection is what needs to matter to Mary. That's what I think is there. Nonetheless, I think that's a mysterious sentence that's missing the bigger point of what Jesus said, which is this. He says, you go and you tell the disciples that I am going to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. That, to me, matters. Do you remember how this whole sermon series started? Jesus is a boy. He's in the temple. His parents leave. You know, they're going home for Passover. They realize, where's Jesus? And they come all the way back, and Mary finally finds him in the temple, Mary and Joseph, and she says, we've been looking like crazy for you. What are you doing? And Jesus says, why were you looking for me? Don't you know that I would be with my father in my father's house? And when you hear that, when you hear Jesus saying he's in his father's house, it's the first inklings of like, Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not like us. And then the next story, the very next week, was the baptism of Jesus, where he goes in the water and John the Baptist says, man, I can't baptize you. Like, you should baptize me. And Jesus says, yeah, but so that it can fulfill all righteousness I'm going to let you baptize me. And as it's happening, the sky breaks open, the spirit descends like a dove, the mouth of God utters, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And it's moments like that where you think Jesus is not like us. Like this is his father and Jesus is his son. And that reality is outside of us. It's like entirely other than, we don't belong to those statements at all. In fact, the very next week, Jesus is walking on water and he Peter comes out to him, right? By faith, he follows the voice of Christ. And he walks and lifts him up. And when they get into the boat, it says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and the disciples worshiped. They worshiped Jesus saying, surely you're the son of God. Surely you're the son of God. You know the power of that statement? That's saying, you are not like us. You alone are the son of God. You, we are not that. Now do you hear, now do you hear it here? Here at the resurrection, you go tell them, I'm going to my father and I'm going to your father. I'm going to my God and I'm going to God. Like all of the otherness that is between God and man is shattered by Christ. What is his is now yours because of what he's done. 
Do you see that? That's what this table's about. Jesus, this is my body. I'm giving it to you. This is the body of the Son of God being given to you so that you can say he's my father too. This is my blood. This is the life of the Son of God poured out to you so that you can say he's my God also. Is the Lord presently precious to you? Because it's on that that he can build so much faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we receive, we receive the story of your resurrection from the least of the kingdom, Lord, so that even the least in this room might know that you will be their father and you will be their God. In fact, we celebrate, Lord, the joy you take in telling stories of yourself through the lowest of people so that everyone in this room might know and there be nobody in this room who would think that they're out of reach of the love of God or not, that God did not come from them for them. Lord, we just pray this morning that everyone would know that God has come so that his Father would be our Father and so that his God would be our God. And as we believers gather this morning, as we who see and believe gather this morning to share in this table, Lord, I pray that we'd be renewed in our faith that right now in this life as we live and as we breathe, that you are active and present. That you redeem us now and give us a future hope. I pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.